Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I am pleased to introduce you today to Dr. Angela Melrooney. Angela is a highly sought after speaker, business coach, and social media expert who helps high level professionals gain the visibility they deserve. Her marketing services help her clients to reach their business goals by allowing them to be found by their ideal clients. She coaches her clients to be purveyors of knowledge so that they become recognized experts in their field. When she is not working with clients or speaking, You'll find her in her dance studio, choreographing and training for shows. It is my pleasure now to bring you to my interview with Dr. Angela Mulroney. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. MJ here bringing you another episode of the Women in Dentistry. I am so excited to bring you Dr. Angela Mulroney. She is joining us from Canada, my first international interview. I'm kind of excited about that. So, you know, I hope that we can spread the cheer a little bit more in our northern neighbors and bring in more guests as time goes on that are, are living up in Canada. But at the moment, Dr. Malrooney is joining us. And, you know, Angela, I know a little bit about your story, but I know the audience doesn't. And I'm really excited to share them with you because what I do know about you has certainly impressed me in the very short amount of time that we have been together and gotten to know one another. So without any further ado, would you please start like I always start? I love to have people tell and share a little bit about their story and how they got into dentistry. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on MJ. It's an honor to be here. So my story started in dentistry when I was about two. My parents have no idea where it came from, but I started to really like teeth. And so I would try and charm everyone in my wake into letting me play with their teeth. And that love of teeth carried on through high school, through university, and at 24, my dream came true. I was gonna to get to be a dentist for real. And honestly, every day that I got to go into practice as an associate was like magic. Um, it was what I'd imagined, it was what I'd played as a kid. Like when other kids played doctor, I wanted to play dentist, so I always had my fingers in people's mouths. And one of my biggest obstacles when I became a dentist was that I'm actually extremely shy. And so when I had to talk to adults, I would sweat, I would start stuttering, I would get in my head about how stupid everything I was saying must sound. So in order to deal with that problem, I decided to work with little kids because I could just tell them stories about the different colored sugar bugs I was removing from their teeth, how they were doing cartwheels and backflips up into the suction. Now, like any great overachiever, I reached a point where I realized I had plateaued and if I was going to take myself to the next level, I had to step out of my kid-centered comfort zone and work with adults which totally made me squirm inside, but I knew that that was the next step to expanding my career. And so oftentimes when I decide something in my life has to change, the perfect opportunity presents itself, and it did. I ran into my old boss who introduced me to a clinic that was in the worst part of town. It was very broken down, very bread and butter, and I fell in love with it and decided that it was going to be mine. And at the time I was 28, the dentist I was buying it from was 78, so there was a five-decade generation gap, which I hadn't even, it hadn't even come into my head that that was an obstacle that I was going to be 
seeking, but you know, over the next year, I poured my heart into the practice, everything I made, I invested back into the practice and turned it from this broken practice into this high-end, high-tech practice that was a dream come true for me. And everything was honestly so perfect. And it carried on and I kept adding more skills to it. And all I could see was potential in the practice. I had these wonderful rose colored glasses on as to how the world could be. And, you know, if I just put good stuff into it, then I would keep getting good stuff out. And it, that first year increased production by 73% by honestly sheer willpower alone. <laughs> and then things started to take a turn. And I hadn't even realized that I was in a situation where the economy had changed around me because I was so head in the practice focusing on that. And it came to a point where I, our patients were canceling appointments. They were moving them out like six months. And these were patients that had been very faithful that first year. And when we finally asked them what was going on, found out that, you know, they didn't have jobs. They didn't have insurance. They didn't have money because we were in the full throes of the global financial crisis. Was this in 2008 then, Angela? 2009, yeah. 2009, yeah. So the world started to very, my perspective started to shift. Things started to get really heavy. I started to feel the weight of entrepreneurship. And mm -hmm. you know that first year when you're so excited about the investment and you're in love with this potential that you see in it, you don't even realize what you've taken on until you kind of hit that wall. And then suddenly things get very, very real. And it took me down. It took me down to some pretty dark places. And eventually I reached a point where I had to make a decision what I was going to do with my life, whether I was going to submit to what I had taken on and let myself collapse under the weight of it, or take a step forward and move myself forward and warrior up and really take the challenge head on. And frankly, I ended up in a stool in my basement with my hand on a rope and I made the choice to actually step down off the stool after a phone call came in, right? And that, that call changed my life, that point in time changed my life because it made me realize, you know, I do have a choice. When things are this bad, I have a choice to give in or I have a choice to fight. And I chose to fight. And over the next few years, I kept building the practice up, acquired a beautiful skill set. I studied under Dr. John Coise. I got my implant residency. I did my sleep apnea. I had my IV sedation. So I had this beautiful skill set and started to be able to take on referrals from other dentists. And it grew into this, like way beyond my dreams of what I could actually do with my career, with my practice. And then I ended up starting to have pain in my right hand, my drilling hand. And it went on for a few months. And I actually danced professionally. So as an athlete, you're trained to push through the pain, push through the pain, push through the pain to get to where you want to go. And so I did until a day where my hand stopped working in a procedure. And I had no idea what was really that, what was wrong. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know how wrong it was. And it took six months to figure out what the problem was. And by that point, my world had gone from perfection to absolute chaos where I was dealing with insurance. I had a private investigator following me around trying to prove that I was a fraud with my injury. I had lots of questions coming at me and I didn't have answers for anyone. And so I went from this perfect life to this fishbowl of chaos that kept taking me down further and further. And it reached a point where I was on bankruptcy's doorstep because 
I had been trying to keep my employees on. I tried to keep my dream practice alive. I was taking care of everyone else instead of me. And then finally found out that I was never going to practice dentistry again because I had focal dystonia. So that was, it was like the final nail in the coffin. And I didn't, I didn't see it coming that my career was just going to be done. And so then I had to figure out, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up again? And it really did take a while to pull myself up off the floor because I spiraled for quite a while trying to figure out what I, what my life was going to be about when I couldn't actually drill. Cause that was what I'd wanted to be for 30 years. I was 32 when it happened. And so it took a lot of soul searching to really pull myself back together and start myself onto a new path, which was business coaching for dentists. So can you go back just a little bit? And first let's talk a little, there's so many things in that story that, you know, people need to understand this is a humongous obstacle to overcome in your professional career. I mean, it's nothing to shake a stick at. First of all, congratulations for being brave enough not to, to make the choice of life instead of death, because that in and of itself, amazing. It's so often, you know, people don't understand the permanency of that decision. And I would imagine that when they finally do, you know, obviously on the other side, I'm, I'm thinking that, oh my gosh, I never should have done that. It's such a, a regret promoting um, decision. But that is neither here nor there. uh, Congratulations that you overcame that. So first of all, how were you able to do that? You know, the call that came in, it was it was it a good friend that just happened to call at that moment in time? It was a patient, actually, um, who was from the old practice who had asked me to place another IRM. And it was actually a five surface pinned IRM. And (laughs) she really needed a crown, but this is what the old dentist did for her over and over again. So I did the same thing. And she ate some jujubes that night and had sucked the IRM right out of her tooth. And she had to call me because she was now in pain. And so that is just such an interesting. Somebody needed you. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your diagnosis. What actually is dystonia? So that people understand what it is. And is it common for dentists? Because I've never heard of it before meeting you. And is it something that, you know, can be prevented that we just don't know about that we could have prevented that you could have prevented? Or is it something that just because it happens? So with focal dystonia, what it does is it it affects your your fine motor skill. So if you're someone who has a genetic predisposition to it, if you push your motor skill too far, then it actually damages your brain and it reverses the chemistry. So now what should contract relaxes and what should relax contracts in my fine motor skill. And if you look at my hands, like they don't even match, like there's no muscle left over here. they're, They're not even the same shape. So yeah. So there's a whole bunch of atrophy. This happened, it started seven years ago and like I'm getting atrophy in my arm and everything else. And they said, you know, if you had been doing pediatrics instead of the long IV sedation appointments, I may have gotten maybe another year, year and a half out of my arm, but they said what happened was inevitable. But the people who tend to get it are 
high dexterity professionals like musicians. They're usually the famous ones for it. Writers can get it, physician, uh, surgeons, and then dentists, of course. So it's if you have the genetic predisposition and you're doing one of those high dexterity jobs, then you are actually prone to it. And there's two other dentists in my city who ended up with it. They got it later in life. So they'd been pushing not quite as hard so fast as I had in my practice. So really the turning point was probably when I brought IV sedation into my, into my skill set because then we were doing longer procedures, but they said, you know, it, there wasn't anything I could have done about it, which honestly took a long time to accept. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. I can't imagine. I, I, so psychologically, a couple of whammies in a very short amount of time to overcome, which is phenomenal that you've even overcome those two things. So fast forward to, you know, making the realization that you can no longer practice. Um, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. You know, talk us through, you know, how you made the decision to do what you're doing today and how did you gain the skill set to become a professional in these areas so that, you know, I mean, I think people really would appreciate understanding, you know, obviously it was not the end of the road for you. We all can recreate ourselves if, if it's necessary in some way, shape or form. So, you know, what was it that you did that allowed you to be able to get to this point? Well, I have to be honest, I did something that people thought was a little crazy and sold my dental practice, opened my professional dance company and did that for the first year after I, I let my practice go. And then I used that just to try and get my head around what, I, what had happened because it was like a ton of bricks when I got hit with it. But then once that year was over, I kept the dance company running and started to look at what I'd been through in my dental practice because I'd been through worst case scenario from being sued to the owner dying halfway through the deal to being blackmailed by an employee to losing my dental career, like worst case scenario in absolutely everything. And so I figured, you know, all the stuff that I'd been through, it can't have just been not been for naught. And there has to be a reason and something that I can do with this information because most dentists maybe go through one of those things in their career if they're lucky, not the whole gamut of bad luck. So I started to figure out what I'd done in my practice to take it from that broken down practice to creating this high-end high-tech practice, how I went from being this shy little dentist who could only work with kids to one who could actually sell $40,000 cases for these broken down patients who were phobic, who their mouths were completely destroyed and started to create a system of educating people on how to do that. And it started, honestly, I wrote up my whole online program. That was the first thing that I did. So 21 lessons long, rewrote it four times to get it perfect before I took it to market. But yeah, it was really just figuring out what the opportunity was in what I had been through because, you know, I took all these really high level programs and I implemented everything that I learned, but didn't get to use them for a very long period of time because of the dystonia. So I knew there had to be a, an avenue that I could take this information, pivot how I had used it in clinical practice to more of a teaching, uh, teaching and facilitating, facilitating the learning for people so that they could, if they wanted to be able to do what I did with my career and go from kids to high-end practice, then they could actually do that for themselves as well. Very good. Very good. So tell us a little bit about your professional abilities today and what you're doing so that, that people know 
you know, what you can help them with, and then we'll go into some other questions. Okay. So I have two companies. So I've got the business coaching company for dental practices, which was the first thing that came in dentistry after the dental clinic. And so in that I work really on figuring out what the brand is of the practice and then in getting the systems and the team aligned underneath that so that you create a really well-oiled machine that's easy for the owner to manage, easy for the team to operate within and really gives an amazing experience, a really high level experience of offering the best care that's available as an option while also having great communication so that patients have the choice to dictate where they want their treatment to go. While trying to get that company noticed, I was leveraging social media and started with LinkedIn. And a year on LinkedIn, I went from 200 industry followers to over 12,000. And so people started to notice me for what I was doing on social media. And they started asking me to do their social media for them. So now a year later, we have Unleashing Influence, which is the social media company. And we help really high level experts in different fields, not just in dentistry, become influencers. So they become thought leaders in what they have a specific expertise for. And so for dentists who are really highly skilled and they wanna get noticed, maybe they wanna become speakers or they wanna get their name out there in a way that is not just on the local perspective, then we can use the social media company to help them with that as well. Oh my gosh, that's fabulous. What a great service to be able to offer everyone, both the coaching and but hard to differentiate yourself as a business coach in this, this field because there's just so many of them. But adding that social media piece, which is something that not everybody knows how to do and leverage as well as you have, which, you know, I have seen you on LinkedIn and how, you know, not, um, how prominent your postings are and, you know, your reach is significant, which is impressive and not easy to do. So, you know, whatever your plan is, it works 100%. Thank you. That's amazing. So what is the single best piece of advice you've ever gotten and who and what was it? Who gave it to you and what was it? Honestly, putting one foot in front of the other, I don't even know exactly who told me that, but when you get into those situations where you come up against that roadblock, you have to eat that elephant one piece at a time. And if you could just take that next step, even if it's just as small as sending an email, reaching out for help, or it's making that phone call, hoping that you can get in touch with the right client or the right person who can actually help you. You just sometimes, you can't see the forest for the trees, but if you can find that one little step that will move you towards it, the best way to get out of your own way and start moving in the direction that you need to. Awesome. Great advice. What helped you most to get where you are today? Is it just your tenacity? Because that's the, that's <laughs> the one word when you were talking that came to my mind right away. You are so tenacious that you just kept plugging away and plugging away and you were not going to take no for an answer. Yeah. Well, I think I've never had someone, I've never had a backup plan. Like if I got into trouble, I was always on my own. Didn't have a spouse, didn't really have a family who could support me and move me forward. So having to be a warrior, having to always survive no matter what has given me that ability to see the opportunities because I didn't have a choice but to do that. But even now, like with COVID, there's a lot of people who are not forced to see the opportunity. They still have, they have a bank account that's still decently full. You still have a choice no matter what the situation is, whether you have to be in that survival mode or you choose to see opportunity, but there's opportunity in everything that is obstructing our pathway. And I feel like sometimes those obstructions are there for a reason, 
for you to figure out a better way that serves you, makes you more happy. It is more suited to your personality. It is the path of least resistance, even if it isn't the path that you originally thought you were meant to be taking. Right. I do think that, you know, obviously during, during the, the reopening phases now, people are, are, it's still tentative trying to think about getting back into full operations and what is it going to look like over the next six to nine months, if not 18 months, depending upon whether or not we see a resurgence and God willing, people will pay attention and, you know, follow all of the rules and do social distancing, wear your mask, you know, you know, stay home if you're sick, blah, blah, blah. I think we can spew this, this stuff ad nauseum at this point, but you know, the financial health and well-being of people, you know, one of the things that I am seeing, and let's just, you know, have a little bit of a conversation about this is that if you, you were not really conscientious about your cash flow, or if you were having a difficult time before COVID-19 with your cash flow and, and the ability to, you know, to take care of, you know, things were just happening just in time every month, that you're going to struggle a little bit uh, getting back into this whole arena, because financially, it's going to be a struggle for at least another 18 to 24 months for us to get back to any sort of whatever the new normal is going to be. And our practices were not just built that way. So are we going to have to redo all of our practices and build according to these new standards? You know, I I think that for most of us, we don't want to waste the time, energy and the capital to do that. But Depends on where you are in your career. You know, I'm on the tail end of my career. Others are in the, just the beginning of their career. So, you know, it behooves them, obviously, to think about those things and to plan for those things. But if you're not making good, sound financial decisions during this time, it could really hurt you. How did you survive? You said you were at the bankruptcy's door. How did you turn that all around for your life? And, you know, what are some of the steps that you were able to take? So what led me to being on bankruptcy's doorstep was making sure that, you know, even though my clinic was operating at about 10% capacity, I was keeping my team on full time because I felt guilty that I had gotten sick. So I got to that point where I was a week away from bankruptcy, finally got the diagnosis from the Mayo Clinic, and then my insurance, my disability insurance finally kicked in. So that was just kind of I would say luck that that kicked in because otherwise I would have absolutely lost everything if that hadn't happened. But what I learned from that is as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you are taking all the risk and you do have to take care of yourself. Yes. You want to make sure your team is stable as well, but at the end of the day, you're the one who's, whose ass is on the line really if things go sideways and you know, during COVID, like a lot of people were like, well, I'm going to just keep my team on full time and they can just sit at home. And I'm like, well, you have to make sure you have a practice that is actually going to survive this. So you have a practice to come back to when this is all over, which means you do have to be taking care of yourself. I'm not going to say like selfish sounds, it has a negative connotation, but you do have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your practice. You have to make sure you feed yourself first, because if you starve, then there's nothing left. Your team is not going to have a home to come back to. And I think as females, we get... Without a doubt, it's females. Yeah, we definitely want to take care of everyone first. And 
you know, I've, I've talked to practices before COVID hit who were in financial trouble and they were in the same mindset, actually males and females. And they were like, well, I have to take care of my team. And I'm like, well, you're going to go under by trying to keep everyone on full time. So is that a good plan or is it better to actually cut the fat right now, save the practice so that you can build back up on it and get thing, get your foundation back in place before you try and bring those people back on. So they actually have stability, but it, yeah, it's funny how we really do want to make sure everyone else is okay. And we forget that, you know, there's the saying, you got to put your oxygen mask on first. Right. And it's so easy to think that that is the wrong thing to do. Yeah, because we want to take care of everybody else first. That's innate mother instinct, right? I think that no matter whether you're a mother or not a mother, that we innately have that instinct that we want to take care of and protect and, you know, and especially your team. If you've developed a great, cohesive, you know, culture with your practice and your team as part of your family, of course, you're going to treat them just like you would your kids. I know I did with my team because they were part of my, they were my work family. You know, I spent more time with them than I did with my own family, husband and and daughter. So, you know, I do know that it can consume you, but we are guilty of putting ourselves aside and allowing everybody else to go first. We have to be careful of that. And we have to be really conscious of that because at the end of the day, those financial decisions, if they're not made, with, you know, objectively without emotions attached to them, they will hurt you and they will hurt your future. And so quite honestly, we need to protect our future. And I, better than anyone, just understands at this point today, I thought I had all this time. And you know what? At some point you realize, oh my gosh, how the heck did that go? You know, I've got a two-year-old grandson and a 30-plus-year-old daughter, and I'm thinking, what, did, what happened? You know, she's still a little girl, you know, in my mind, but it's not that way anymore. And, uh, yeah, time goes by, and, and your future comes eventually, and you have two choices. Either you can retire or you can't retire, and, and that's the choice, right? So we have to be smart with our financial decisions. Yes, and even if you have made smart financial decisions, when things come out of left field that are out of your control, even with those good financial decisions, you can get devastated very quickly. So you always want to try and make sure you have a little bit of padding to protect yourself. And then again, see the opportunity when it happens to maneuver and get smarter in the yeah. situation, even if it's uncomfortable. Absolutely. So who's made the biggest impact on your life thus far? Do you have a specific person in mind or is there any group of people in mind that, that made a big impact on you? Honestly, I've had so many amazing mentors along the way who have paved the path for me, who have had so much input from different directions and from different sets of insight that there isn't really one specific person, but the collective knowledge has always just pushed me forward and helped me to not see barriers. And I know like a lot of female entrepreneurs think, well, cause I'm a girl, I can't do this or that. And I've always just been like, I'm just a human being. <laughs> so why can't I do this? And I've never let the gender stereotypes, I've never seen a ceiling for myself. All I've always seen is potential. And when that potential stops being seen, then I figure out, okay, why is that? What is the opportunity so I can move beyond that and keep leveling up? Exactly. Oh my gosh. I love that you said that. And I, I think it's key that you also mentioned so many mentors 
because I think that that is one thing that young women really need to pay attention to is that, you know, when we're growing up and when we're younger, we don't have all of the information, but there's somebody out there that does. And so how do we approach them or what do we need in our, what skill set do we need in our life to make the next journey possible, right? If you know where you're going to go, you can work backwards and take and put the steps in place to get you there. But if you don't know where you want to go, if, if that hasn't been decided, then you can't take action. So I think, you know, starting with the end in mind and working your way backwards and putting those steps in place, but also finding a mentor to help you along the way. I don't think there's any woman out there, if they were asked, would ever say, no, I can't, I don't have time for you, or no, I can't, I won't do that for you. We love to help each other. Uh, I think it's part of our nature. And I think community of, communities of women get more things done than I've ever seen in a, a collective group of, of mixed communities or a collective group of men. Now, saying that, you know, I would say that teams of sports-minded you know, men do the same. But I think there's way too much competition in the, the financial world for men to play at that level all the time, you know, because it's more of an individual sport for them. It's not a team sport. With women, it doesn't matter what kind of a team we're on, whether it's a workplace or a home or a sports team, we all work collectively together because it's just our nature. Have you seen the same in, in your work? I have. I have to admit that most of my mentors have actually been male. Yeah. I think it's just a generational thing because a lot of the people who were killing it, who are in the generations before me, were males. Right. And so I gravitated towards them because I wasn't looking at like who will do for right now. I was always looking at who is the best person that I could get, go under their wing and get guidance from. And, you know, if the cost was too astronomical, I would find a way to make it so that I could make it happen. And I think, again, a very female mindset is that, well, I'm, I don't deserve that. And, you know, if you need the guidance and that is the best person for you, you will find a way to make it happen so that you can access that guidance and you'll find the steps. You'll have a conversation with them and just be brave and just say, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I can afford. How can we make this work with that? And I think a lot of females won't actually do that for themselves. They'll get scared and get stuck and just say, well, I'm not enough for that. And you need to get out of, out of your way and actually stand up for yourself and take those actions that are going to get you moving to where you want to go. Even if it, it creates an uncomfortable conversation for you, it's way more uncomfortable to feel like you're being left behind because you didn't make, you didn't take that time to have that conversation. Or regret having regret in your life and reflecting back on your life and saying, Oh my gosh, if I had only just done that one thing, it could have possibly changed the trajectory of my life. I agree with you that most of, um, and I'm, I'm assuming that your mentors were mostly dentists, male dentists in your early part of your career. And I will say that I, I found the same in my own personal life as I was younger. There were tons of men that actually were very supportive of me and my vision for what I wanted to do. Not so in the beginning of my life, but as I just kept pushing and saying, I want to be a dentist and I want to go and do this, most of the men in my, my life were the dentists who, who saw the potential in me as a human being, not as a male or a female, but as a human being, 
and supported that vision, even when people around me were not, not clearly supporting that vision. So I think it's just a matter of women weren't plentiful at the time, right? That there's now more women. And I will have to say in the, in the academic arena, there's still 10 times more men than there are females in uh, the, the uh, leadership roles. And even in the, the, teaching roles at most universities. Very fortunate at Tufts that that's not the case. But in general, I do see that young women in dental school struggle because there aren't very many female leaders in their schools. And, um, you know, you have to seek out whoever will show you appreciation for your talents and what you do and what you bring to the table because we all have talents. We all bring something. And I think collectively people's minds are being open more to fact that gender role, traditional gender roles aren't necessarily serving us very well on the male side and on the female side. And so I think a lot of those barriers are being broken down, but I can't even imagine with your generation, what you were up against, because for my generation, there was still like we had, there was one prof who told us that girls didn't belong in dental school. And I graduated in 2004. Like this isn't in the seventies. This is in the two thousands. We were being told this as well. And so I know that it's definitely starting to change. I think maybe one third of my class was female when I graduated and now it's like 50, 50 or um, even more favorable towards females. But I think it, it definitely has shifted and we're seeing more equality, but you're someone who is a trailblazer in your day compared to someone like me in my generation where I have more equality opportunities, even though we're still held back. So I think what you've been able to, what you've achieved and chosen to do with your life is amazing. Well, I, I will say that there's many of us out there. There really are. There's much more than, than you think, especially when I look around, you know, even in my leadership roles at the Mass Dental Society and other state associations and on the national level at the ADA, there's a ton of rocking women out there. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, because I have been fortunate enough to meet a lot of these women in Quite honestly, I I had two women in my life that really made a huge impact. One was 97 when she died. One was just over 100 when she died. And both were in the same class. And two or three women in the class, that was it. And I had so many great conversations with them. As I reflect back now, the conversations that I had with them, I'm so sad that I didn't tape them in some way, shape, or form just so they could inspire us today because what they had to live through, I can't even imagine, you know, especially, you know, somebody who wanted to become an oral surgeon in school in the twenties. Are you kidding me? Do you know how difficult it must've been for her to survive that? You know, I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine. So yeah, there's a lot of rocking women out there that, that have trailed the blaze before us, but I will say that this year's entering class at Tufts is 63% female. Wow. So when you reflect back, would you describe yourself as a confident woman? And if not, how did you gain confidence? Because, you know, what I see on a regular basis is, you know, the brilliance of these young women is there. The skill set of the young women are there but they lack the confidence in their ability. And you mentioned earlier, you know, not feeling good enough or not feeling worthy enough to get X, Y, and Z. I remember having the same feelings when I was younger as well. And how do we overcome that? Or how did you overcome it in your life? Well, I think a lot of my my shyness actually stems from that lack of confidence. And I still find myself like 
going to dental events and whatnot, if I walk into a room, suddenly I feel really, really small and I just want to hide in the corner. So that shyness hasn't really gone away. I've been able to hide it better by throwing my shoulders back and just trying to posture myself in a way that makes my brain think that I'm being confident. But there's still that doubt all the time. And when it comes to business, I feel I don't really doubt myself. It's more in those social situations where I feel like if I'm standing beside someone like you, I'm going, oh my gosh, like this person is so beyond me. I don't belong here, right? But the thing is what you realize the more and more you put yourself out there and I'm at more and more conferences all the time is that it's just a whole bunch of human beings and everyone has those insecurities. And by presenting myself as my shy self, I'm not doing myself any favors. I'm not making anyone else more comfortable around me either because they can see my discomfort. And so it's trying to train myself out of that and just know that I'm just hanging out with a bunch of regular people. They've all had their journeys. They have their insecurities. They have their struggles. And, you know, we're all in this together. Everyone is doing their best to um, make their way in the world. And some people have had very public, amazing successes. Some have very had private successes. And you just have to realize that, yeah, it's just a whole bunch of human beings. And I love that. I love that because, yeah, we are just all human beings. And and I hope I didn't make you feel that way because never my intent to let anybody think that I'm not approachable because, you know, in my mind, I think, you know, I'm very gregacious and out there and, and as inviting as, as anyone could be because I do remember feeling that way of not being able to approach people when I was younger because so I want to be approachable. I want to be that person that anybody can ask a question of. So I'll just say that. It's not a you problem. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But, but then when you feel, you know, like you feel bad, like that somebody perceives you that way. Right. And so you want to hope that you're not doing something that somebody else perceives you that way too. Right. Well, I, I think most people don't, I think most people are actually trying to be welcoming, but when you have those seeds of doubt, you have to try and push them away. Without a doubt. Now, who inspires you in dentistry? Like who do you admire that, that you really look up to today? In dentistry? I would say Dr. John Coyce is still one of the ones that I look up to the most because he, he changed my perspective so much. He changed my, how I perceived my potential in my clinical skills, in my, even my business skills, because I was able to bring in skills that changed the landscape of my business completely. And yeah, he really just helped me to truly see potential in myself. And he wasn't even someone that I like interacted with. I was just attending his classes, but the way that he makes you feel when you're learning from him, that everything is possible and that you totally can do this as long as you follow the methodology. Um, I think it's, he has an amazing gift for helping people to see their potential. That's awesome. That's really awesome. He's on my bucket list of somebody I'd like to meet someday. So, you know, amazing what he has done with his career, isn't it? Absolutely. What would be one thing that people would be surprised to know about you? Probably the shyness part of it <laughs> more than anything else. Cause I'm out there on social media all the time. I'm on podcasts like this, having conversations and we don't usually talk about the shyness side of it, but honestly, after I realized what time it was and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I have to get ready for the interview. I had sweaty palms and I was nervous to come on here. Cause I'm like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, you get in your head and you're like, I don't want to sound dumb. I don't want to embarrass myself and those yeah the shyness still 
is still very ingrained in me, even though I have been better at hiding it, I guess. So, you know, I'm going to give you an interesting story to counteract that. So I can remember the first time I decided that I was going to do a podcast, right? I had never done any kind of interview before in my entire life. I hadn't been on video. I hadn't done any of this ever. Not once. Not once. Now, this this whole thing started in April. It was like right around when COVID-19 started. And so I started just putting this all together. And like I shared with you earlier, I, I just took that one step every single day to get to this point. And finally, I had to do, I had to, I had to schedule a podcast and I had to get somebody to interview. So I, I took somebody safe, right? And I figured, all right, I'll just take somebody safe that I know that if I mess it all up and I, I and I got to tell you, my heart was racing. My hands were sweaty. I almost had a heart attack. My heart was racing so bad. So the way I think about it now is I realize that everybody else is in the same boat that I'm in. And we are, like you have said repeatedly, we are all human beings. And we all have that same type of reaction the first time we do anything. I think the confidence comes when we've done it enough time, we realize, okay, I can get through this. Yeah. I remember the first time I picked up a drill. I'm sure you remember the first time you picked up a drill. I thought I was going to have a heart attack in the chair. Now, that was not the first time that I had an instrument in my hand. It wasn't because I had been a hygienist for 15 years before I even put a drill on somebody's teeth. It was not an issue. I knew how to deal with patients. I knew all of that stuff. But mentally putting a drill in somebody's mouth overcame me. So I think that that might be a key for, to help people, you know, maybe deal with some of this anxiety that you and I still both get at our age, that it is just a part of being a human being. It's that fight or flight reaction. We don't have any control over it. It's how we manage it and how we get through it is what's helpful. Yes. And I think paying attention to the stories that we tell ourselves about what is happening in that moment, like even the shyness around you, when I met you in person, I'm, it doesn't even make sense. The story that I was telling myself. So when you look back at it and you can keep retraining yourself that when you feel that again, reframe the situation that it's not that bad, or this is an opportunity. And you know, I belong here just as much as everyone else. You have to almost train yourself into that mindset to get past it. And you the more you practice it, the better it gets, for sure. Without a doubt. Now, have you, in your new career, in your new position in, in consulting and influence, have you had an aha moment where you realized you were doing exactly what you were meant to do and it surprised you? It was actually when I was speaking at Harvard. And it was actually the first time I had publicly spoken in about five years. Wow. When I had my practice, I was always doing seminars for the public about sleep apnea. And then I got invited to speak and I was terrified, but it was one of those out of body experiences. Like everything just came together and it was delivered almost flawlessly. But that was the moment where I'm like, yeah, this public, the speaking thing, being able to talk and move an audience's emotions up and down by my words, by my movement is really where I belong. You know, it's amazing to watch you move. Tell us, you know, I know that you have a passion for dancing. I have seen you dance and your dancing is absolutely amazing. So do you have anything on YouTube that people can watch in case they're curious? 
Yes, uh, if they go to Unleashed Dance Company, if they search that on YouTube, you can find a lot of stuff on there. We have our Facebook channel as well. Awesome. I'm assuming that that's one of the ways that you relieve stress and, you know, obviously exercise and that's part of your, your daily routine. So tell us a little bit about how you manage to fit all of that into building a successful company and a career. Well, it's funny when I sold my dental practice, actually, when I was an associate dentist, I was always dancing professionally as well as being a dentist. So I had the, those two things going the whole time. And there was points in my life where I was working 40 hours a week and dancing 40 hours a week on top of it. And then when I bought my practice that first year, I got so obsessed with the practice and what I was trying to build that I kind of pushed dance to the side. And then when things got really heavy with the economy and the lawsuit hitting, then I realized, you know, I have to bring dance back into my world because it balances the two sides of me. But then when I sold my dental practice and did the dance company for a year, I realized that the biggest part of my soul was missing, which was dentistry. People always thought dance was above dentistry and it was always the other way around. It was just dance was unusual for someone who was a professional to be pursuing professional dance at the same time. So there was always kind of this misconception, but trying to pursue the dance company for a year, I realized like I needed that stimulation of business. I needed the stimulation of science. I needed a completely different side of my brain to be functioning. So the artistic side is really great because it helps me to move a lot of things through with my stories and whatnot. Cause a lot of my, the choreography that I build, it's built based on stories of what I've been through. And that's why a lot of times those choreographies really move an audience too, cause they see their story in it, even though there's no words, it's just, we're able to affect them with, I guess, energy, if we want to call it that and be able to move them that way. And then now with speaking, there's the same ability, except it's using my words with a little bit of movement incorporated as well. You know, it's interesting. I think that, that most dentists have that creative side that we love to express. Don't you agree? Like, because it comes out in our, our, our crown and bridge, it comes out in, in our aesthetics. You know, I always, you know, absolutely love that part of, of dentistry because my eye could see it. I felt very fortunate that I could see color and hue and really be a perfectionist when it came to that. And not everybody has that. So I think that that's a key component to being an outstanding dentist is, is just having that ability. So you must have it to the nth degree for sure. Yes. Well, that was part of the enjoyable, like dentistry is about power tools and spit, but also the artistic side of it was wonderful as well, for sure. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Now, do you have a personal mantra or model that you live by? Yeah, it's actually, it's not in this room, it's upstairs, but be the change you wish to see in the world. Ah, that's a great one. That is a great one. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And how about a guilty pleasure or a secret dream that you'd like to share with the audience? It's honestly, I, I don't even feel guilty about it. It's just one of those simple pleasures. I have this little hamster. His name is Sai. He's only like this big, but honestly, just having a quiet evening to just sit and like play with him is one of the greatest, like it's one, one of the things that makes me the most happy because it just allows my world to stop. It allows me to focus on this beautiful little creature who just, it's amazing how something that small can create that much love bursting out of your heart. And yeah, just taking those moments to just be. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
I do think that many of us really, you know, do enjoy our pets in some way, shape or form and whatever size they take, it's nothing more than, you know, unconditional love because they just love us back no matter what. They don't care what we wear or what we, where we live or, you know, what kind of car we drive. They just love us for who we are. I think that that's one of the, the sweetest things about dogs and, and cats that they just love us no matter what. Any animal, right? Yes. Awesome. Last question. If you're having a bad day, how do you turn it around and so that you can maintain your composure? Because as a professional, we both know that, you know, there are times when we're having bad days and you can't let it get to you. So how do you turn your bad days around? I have an opportunity to go for a run or do handstands. Both of those things tend to reset my brain. So handstands are easier if I'm not able to get out and get a sweat on. If I can't do that because I'm in a public environment and people will think I'm nuts if I do that, then just trying to find a project that I can sink my teeth into until that bad day passes. Uh, for me, finding a project is usually the best thing if I can't actually just get that energy burst out to reset. That's great. Great feedback and great, uh, great conversations. Anything else last minute that you want to share with the audience? You know, thoughts, whiz of, words of wisdom that you might want to pass along? What I would say for the younger generation out there is that don't, don't let anyone tell you you can't be exactly what you think you want to be. Maybe the world doesn't, isn't going to allow you to be that, but someone telling you that you aren't able to achieve what you want to achieve is something that's in them that's stopping them from doing that for themselves. And a lot of people will try and stifle your potential, mm -hmm. but... If you want something bad enough, you can find the pathway. You can find the mentors to help you to get there. You can find the education to get there. And if you want it, you can make anything that you ever dreamed of completely possible. Oh my gosh, great way to end the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Angela. It has been my absolute pleasure having you on the show. And I thank you so, thank you so much, much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanley. If you like our show and want to know Thanks. more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation. Thank you.